0: Happy Father's Day again to all of the dads, fathers, grandfathers, father figures that Christ has brought together in the church. We are so grateful for what you bring into our church community. There is a pattern in preaching Mother's Day and Father's Day, and it really follows, I think, the American emphasis on the holidays. Actually, statistically, Mother's Day is the number two holiday in the American calendar. Number one is Christmas, so it's Jesus Then moms, number two, Father's Day is the Twentieth uh, holiday. I can't even think of 18 other holidays. Arbor Day is like numbered like 12 or something like that. And in churches, we follow that pattern. Mother's Day, we usually preach a sermon and speak so affirmingly to moms and how loved they are, and we point out the scriptural patterns. We talk about Mary and Martha, and we we encourage moms. And then Father's Day is usually, Dad, you're not doing enough. You're not good enough. And it's normally sort of a kicking dad's butt sermon. So I just want to start out today by saying, dads, you're all right. You're good. You're, you're doing good. You're great. We love you. Um, we're grateful for what, I, yeah, I didn't expect a, a round of applause, but you could go for it. This morning I'm going to speak briefly since we have so much going on today. We're so grateful and there is a keg of birch beer and ice cream waiting for you afterwards. So I want to just make sure we prioritize that, you know. So I'm going to walk through Scripture this morning briefly. My sermon today is entitled Three Examples of Biblical Masculinity or subtitled Big Boys Do Cry. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 20 where we see many men weeping tears of affection out of frustration, out of fear, out of love and admiration for one another. We're going to look at three biblical examples of what it looks like to be a man in the Old Testament specifically. I felt led to this passage about David. If you don't know, the story is about King David or future King David. Right now, he's just David. And David is anointed to be the king of Israel. The problem being there is currently a king of Israel. And David is married to his daughter. And so his father-in-law is the current king. The promise of his life is that he would replace that king. So you can kind of guess there is some tension going on. The current king does not want to be removed for this young upstart. In the middle of the story is the fact that David's best friend, is his brother-in-law, and is the king who would be king if King Saul remained. So there's this odd thing going on. There's a current king who is angry that he will be replaced. There is the anointed future king whose life is at risk and is trying his best to walk that journey. And then there's a man named Jonathan in the middle, Saul's son who would be king and the best friend of David who is anointed to replace Jonathan in the line of kings. How does this story play out? As we read this story, I want to encourage you, even though it's an Old Testament story about kings and uh, anointings and harvest moon festivals, things that we can't totally relate to now, this is still a story in a culture so relevant to today. There's suffering, there's relational betrayal, there's family dynamics of pain and tension, there's stories of sorrow and anger, sadness, unfairness towards life promises. People whose lives expected to go one way are now going another and trying to reconcile what we do with that tension. In essence, it's three different men trying to make sense out of a world that often feels chaotic. What are they doing in a sinful world where things are unfair? What do we think of the chaos of our world, and how do we find our place in it? What have you thought even this weak men of sin in this world, the chaos of our world? What do you think of God's grace in that chaos and your place in that story? Scripture is a mirror God gives to us to understand our own life and place in this world. It helps us understand as a guidance or a map, but mostly... Scripture itself, as we say here at and AG, is a unified story, both human and divine, that leads to Jesus. And as we see this story, it is also a hand pointing to the greatest example we have, to the power we have, the freedom and joy that we have in Christ Jesus. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 20. We're going to dance around. But we're going to cover most of the themes of this entire chapter. But I'll give you some context. 1 Samuel chapter 20 begins with David, the future king, returning back to Israel. He's been in exile because the current king wants to murder him, because he doesn't want him to become king. So he's living in exile, far away, relative safety, and for some reason in this passage, he comes back into Israel. He comes back and puts himself in danger He is expected to celebrate what's known in this time as the new moon festival. It's basically the full moon or the the moon is ended and it's restarting. It's a calendar month. It's the start of the month. And so they celebrate that. And for the king, his whole family comes together and they celebrate the start of a new month. He is the king's son-in-law. So he's expected to be there at dinner. He meets up with his best friend, Jonathan, also expected to be there at dinner. They come up with this crazy plan as to how they're going to handle this, how they're going to excuse the fact that David's not at dinner. Come up with this cockamamie story. He's going back to his hometown because his family really misses him and wants him to be there for the festival. And it's really an elaborate lie to protect David from being killed at dinner. Jonathan, son of the king, Jonathan, best friend of the future king, is in the middle of it, trying to advocate for both his father and his best friend, trying to keep the peace between them. And so at dinner, Jonathan tells this elaborate story why David's not there. Saul sees through it immediately, flies into a rage. David then knows he cannot come back into his hometown, into his home family without it ending in bloodshed and disaster, and so he leaves with a tearful farewell with his best friend. That's the story of 1 Samuel chapter 20. We're going to look at each of these men individually. Let's begin with Saul. Let's talk about Saul, the first man who's here, uh, a man's man in every way, shape, and form in the Old Testament. He's really tall. He's very strong. He's good-looking. He is a leader type. Obviously, he has decisions. He makes them quick. People look at him. He's a great warrior and fighter. It says he kills thousands. They respect him. He also, at this point of the story, is quickly descending into insanity. He is a person anointed, a person with power and and charisma so much potential he's a young man with incredible potential he's beautiful he's tall he's strong god's anointed person samuel finds him and anoints him to be king god's chosen him has a plan for him but we see in saul's life he is anointed he is blessed he is beautiful he is well-meaning but he falls into temptation He is one of many scriptural examples of a person with tons of potential who starts out with all the best intentions, but ends his life in disaster. He's powerful, beautiful, anointed. He's impatient. He's rebellious. He's prideful. He's fearful. He makes excuses, and he enters in step by step into sin, pride, and rebellion. And while he starts out anointed, at the point of our story, he is actively working and battling against the will of God in his nation. He finds himself now as an enemy of God's plan and purpose. How did he get this far? How does he end up in this place? Let's look at the story as we see it. 1 Samuel chapter 20 verses 27 through 33. This is David and Jonathan's plan in motion, not a very good plan. The first day David's seat was empty, Saul's like, okay, maybe something happened. And The second day, this is where we find ourselves, when David's place was empty again on the next day, Saul asked Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse been here for the meal either yesterday or today? We don't really get it in this passage, but that's actually a slight at David. It's, you know, this, this kid from this town. Why isn't he here? He's his son-in-law, but he refers to him this way. Jonathan replied, David earnestly asked me if he could go to Bethlehem. He said, please let me go, for we're having a family sacrifice. My brother demanded that I be there, so please let me go away to see my brothers. That's why he isn't here at the king's table. This is a lie. Saul sees through, boiled with rage at Jonathan. He says, pardon the phrase, this is scripture, you stupid son of a whore, he swears at him do you think, I don't know, that you want him to be king in your place, shaming yourself and your mother? He says, why would you, who will be king one day, why are you selling yourself out for this man we barely know, who's an upstart shepherd, born and in, coming into our family through marriage? You're going to give up your promise, your destiny, the future of your life for this guy? What are you, a moron? Are you one of my actual children? What's wrong with you, he's saying? As long as the son of Jesse is alive, you will never be king. Now go and get him so that I may kill him. But why should he be put to death, Jonathan says. Brave question. What has he done, Dad? Then Saul hurls a spear at Jonathan intending to kill him. So at last, Jonathan realized that his father was really determined to kill David. Saul rages at Jonathan for David's absence. Saul's anger in this story is kindled at Jonathan. Certain translations, that's what it says, that his anger is kindled. It's inflamed, which means he's already angry. He's already angry. It's not Jonathan's fault that he's angry, and he's honestly not angry at Jonathan. He's angry at this situation, and Jonathan's participation in it is blowing into the flame. It's throwing new kindle into the fire of his anger. Saul's anger is not in this story and at this point at Jonathan. His anger is not even at David. Seeing the story as a whole, we know that Saul's anger is at God. His anger is that God promised him a life. God told me I would be king. He told me I was anointed for this. I was special. I was chosen. He had a special plan and purpose for my life. My family would rule and reign in this nation. That's what God promised me, but he changed his mind on me. I thought God's plan for me was one way, and now all of a sudden it's something else. I don't understand. It's unfair. What have I done? Why is this good God, righteous God, seem so cruel to me and for me in my life? I've just tried to rule. Sure, I've been impatient. Sure, I've made some mistakes. I I know that. But he promised me this beautiful future and he's tearing it away from me. He's angry and his anger, at first and foremost, is not horizontal. He's not angry at people. His anger is vertical. His anger is with God and his lot in life. Saul's rage is an expression of a war within his soul. Do I, that trusted God at one point, now trust him in this new decision, which isn't as beautiful as the promise I thought it was? Do I still trust his character? Do I still trust his will, that while I don't understand it, I trust that he must have something good in mind for this? Can I trust this? Do I trust this? The answer unequivocally for Saul is no, I don't. Saul believes his life is now unfair. Saul is the victim of God's cruel plan. He fails to realize the consequences of his own actions. I didn't do anything to deserve this. It's not my fault that life is moving this way. And he will rage against anyone who stands in the way of his plan. We rage at the people around us And men often do this because we've had a lot of power, we've had a lot placed onto our shoulders as men throughout history. We've had a lot of opportunity to wield it, and when that power and privilege is taken from us, we are not really angry at the people around us who are seemingly affecting it. What we're angry about is the condition of our heart And that what we want and what we have planned and what we believe that we deserve is being taken from us unfairly. Underneath all anger is the understanding that it's our will being taken away. Often our irritation, our anger, or our offense reveals that we still struggle with the plan and purposes of God. Can I trust the plan and purpose of God when it diverges from my own plan and purpose. Can I? Will I? Should I? What we need is a regular pattern as men to not fall into where Saul is to confess that first our struggle is vertical. Every struggle we have, every moment of disappointment, every moment of anger initially is vertically with what we expect God to be doing in our lives. And where have we diverged and perceive that He has changed. And I'll ask you, each man here, and all of us, when do you tend to question the plan and will of God? Is it around relationships aren't going the way you feel like they should? Is it a plan that you've had for your life that now seems impossible or not the plan? Is it your location, where you live, the context you're in, your lack of resources, your status itself. Can we pray as Christ Jesus prays in Luke twenty-two forty-two? 42, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering from me. Yet, I want your will to be done and not mine. Can we, when God's will begins to diverge from our own perceived will, submit out of humility and prayer, God, not my will, yours. Saul can't, he won't. And we see in this story, if we continued on, it end in disastrous pain. We have another option, because there's three guys happening here. Two, let's look at David. How does David play into this story? David, a huge character in the Old Testament, a huge historical figure looming over all of Scripture, as a man after God's own heart, but a man also flawed and with his own deep areas of sin and abuse and pain. Let's look at David's story in 1 Samuel chapter 20. This is the beginning of the chapter. This is David returning back. David now fled from Nioth in Ramah and found Jonathan. What have I done? He exclaimed, what's my crime? How have I offended your father that he's so determined to kill me? That's not true, Jonathan protested. You're not going to die. He always tells me everything he's going to do, even the little things. I know my father won't hide something like this from me. It's just not so. You see Jonathan, always the peacekeeper, trying to argue for everyone. Then David takes an oath before Jonathan and he says, Your father knows perfectly well about our friendship. So he has said to himself, I will not tell Jonathan. Why should I hurt him? But I swear to you that I am only a step away from death. I swear it by the Lord and I'm by my own soul. Heavy words. Why does David come back? Why? Why come back in this moment, in this context? He's pretty safe. And where he is, away, and he can thrive, and he can wait it out. He can wait out till Saul's own demise. He can trust God that Saul's ends are going to defeat himself and just wait. Why put himself in danger here? Now, it's not explicit in the passage, but I do think what may be at play is actual humility from David, an actual desire to reconcile To say, I know that God's plans are divergent for Saul and I, but maybe, just maybe, we both love God, we both have a desire for, we love the same people, there can be reconciliation here. Maybe, and maybe, just maybe, even though it seems pretty obvious, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I have something to play here, and I have to own up to it, and we have to walk this together. In fact, in verse 8, following these verses, he says, Jonathan... Maybe I've done something wrong, and if I have, I should pay up for the consequences. What a posture. We have seen, if we read this story before, there is very little evidence that David is at fault. There is a lot of evidence that Saul is paranoid, is angry, is vengeful, is prideful, and that David is doing everything he can to avoid it. But in this passage, he is a man coming forward and saying, maybe I might be wrong, I would love for there not to be bloodshed and for us to somehow reconcile this and see God's will work through it. How can he do this? How? How can Saul struggle with it so much, David, be able to do it? I think it's the same principle. David's peace is vertical before it's horizontal. He has reconciled himself with God. And so he can walk into his human relationships, whatever chaotic human relationships they may be, and have peace that God's will will be done. Such confidence in his relationship with his Maker. Such confidence in his relationship that even the pain of anything that happens will not separate the will from the character of the God he trusts. Evidence of this, Psalm 27 verses 1 through 4 that scholars think he wrote around this time. David says in his Psalm, in his song to God, the Lord is my light and my salvation, so why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress protecting me from danger, so why should I tremble? When evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and foes attack me, they'll stumble and they'll fall. Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I am attacked, I will remain confident. The one thing I ask of the Lord, the one thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in His temple. How do we find peace in unfair circumstances? How do we find peace when we're genuinely being taken advantage of, when we genuinely are the victim of the circumstance? Brandon just prayed up here over Juneteenth, repeated examples of men and women of color in our nation able to exhibit peace and forgiveness in moments when it's totally unfair to them. One of my favorite quotes from the civil rights movements of the 1960s is one of the pastoral leaders saying, If I didn't believe in the character of a just and righteous God who one day will be just and righteous to all mankind, I'm not sure I could do this. I'm not sure I could stand here and protest this because it sure doesn't look like justice is going to be done, but I trust in the character of the God that I worship, and because of that I can stand firm even when all the horizontal relationships of my life are falling apart. David has placed his heart into an attitude of worship. Did he get there easily? Nope. Did it happen overnight? Absolutely not. Did it happen prayer after prayer in cave after cave running for his life? Did it happen as he wrote journal entries and wrote songs about God's goodness while in the desert of a foreign land pretending to be insane in order to protect his life? Yes. In his suffering, he turns his heart Towards the God who created him. And he learns reliance and worship on him. And he discovers the good character of his God who made him in quietness, in worship, in prayer. So that in one moment, he's able to say, I don't care how this plays out physically. I don't care how this plays out relationally. I know the character of the God who is moving and working in all of these things. And so I can walk in with confidence and peace, knowing the character of my God. As I recognize myself, the character of the God I believe in, as I meditate on the goodness that He promises me, as I sing of the goodness of His character in worship, as I read about the goodness of His promises, His fulfillment of them in Scripture, I am reminded of my value, I am reminded of my future and I am reminded of the God who has promised me both. And so I can walk in human circumstances. When my heart is filled with gratitude, it's hard for it also to be filled with fear. When my heart is filled with wonder, it's also hard for it to be filled with anger. I can face any challenge that comes my way, fair or unfair, and hopefully, Like David, we can be able to be humble with courage to face that danger. I ask you all today, in our context, how do you face mistreatment? How do you face the circumstances when you are genuinely not the one at fault? When you are not the one who is wrong, but you are the one being wronged? How do you face that? What's your posture in it? Where do you turn to discover back the justice working universally through our God, even though your circumstance may be unjust. When does your faith give way to fear? And when can we reclaim that faith over fear in the character of our God? I'd argue it comes through the demonstration of this third person, this third man in the story, Jonathan. Jonathan, an insane character in the Old Testament. Jonathan, almost like any other figure in Scripture outside of Jesus Christ Himself, able to act so unselfishly, so selflessly, so graciously, so kind. He is one of the most endearing characters in all of the Old Testament. You read Jonathan, you just like this guy. He's nice, he's kind, he's loving, he's open with his emotions. He is what we know in scholarship Of the Old Testament of a Christ figure. He is a figure in the Old Testament that points us forward to Jesus Christ. He reminds us of the character of Jesus, makes us think for, long for someone to fully fulfill what Jonathan does. He's a man of faith. Famous story, he runs into a battle with just his shield bearer, just his one other guy partner, and he says, let's go take this army down. Hopefully God will be in it. Runs in. He's a man of emotion. There are more instances of Jonathan crying for how much time he takes up in Scripture than any other person. He's crying, he's weeping, he's hugging, he's laughing, he's giving kisses on the cheek to his male friends, he's embracing and hugging them. He's also an amazing warrior, slaughtering armies. He is loved. By his men and his community, there's a moment where he actually does commit a a sin. He eats some food he shouldn't in a battle. His father comes and he goes, well, rules are rules. you got to die. His men rally around him. They go, no, not Jonathan. No, kill all of us, but not him. We love him. And he's loyal. He defends people well beyond the time they should be defended. He still sees the good in them and argues for them. David says to him, your father is actively trying to kill me. Jonathan, he threw a spear at my head in a dinner party. Jonathan goes, no, nah, but his heart's good, man. He believes in everyone. He advocates for David. He advocates for Jonathan. He advocates for the God that he serves. Who could write a story of David returning to face the king who wants him dead and that the person he turns to is the son of the king who wants him dead, who also happens to be his best friend, who has sworn a love covenant together. I love you, I'll take care of you, man. I love you, I'll take care of you. Who could write this story but God's grace and love? In his love for David, he does what many of us can't or often won't. He prioritizes David's future at the expense of his own. He literally says, I love you so much and I trust the God that we both serve that I will advocate for my own demise, that my future will be lost to history. My children will not rule over this throne. I will not have a future as king. I want you to have that future and I will advocate against my own self-interest. What Saul yells at Jonathan as an insult, Jonathan considers the call Of the gracious love he has. Yeah, I know what I'm doing. And yeah, it's out of love and grace that God has put in me. Loving friendship empowers us to sacrifice our rights and benefits for the sake of others. Some argue this is the definition of love itself. To put the wants and needs of another above your own. We see Jonathan embodying that. Or, as Jesus says in John 15, verse 13, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for our friends. Okay, let's see Jonathan's story. 1 Samuel, chapter 20, verses 11 through 17. That whole part was supposed to be shorter, but I just get carried away with Jonathan. I really like him. Okay, 1 Samuel 20, verse 11. Come out to the field with me, Jonathan replied, and they went out there together. Then Jonathan told David, I promise by the Lord, the God of Israel, that by this time tomorrow or the next day at the latest, I will talk to my father and let you know at once how he feels about you. If he speaks favorably, I'll let you know. But if he's angry, I'll warn you. May the Lord strike me and even kill me if I don't warn you so that you can escape and live. May the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. And may you treat me with the faithful love of the Lord as long as I live. But if I die, treat my family with this faithful love, even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a solemn pact with David, saying, May the Lord destroy all of your enemies. And Jonathan made David reaffirm his vow of friendship again. For Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. Other translations say he loved David as he loved his own soul. One of the truths in this passage is a a real truth for us today. We can often spiritualize all of this. We could say, it's just a hard issue. You just need Jesus, just the Spirit in you. But when we read Scripture, there is a reality of the theology of incarnation. Not just that Jesus came incarnate and put on flesh, but that God's love and God's activity is incarnate. It takes place in us and through us. Jonathan is an incarnate expression of God's love and will, not just for David, but for the will and direction of his people because he knows this is the right way, because he knows this is the route to bring about salvation eventually through Christ Jesus in this family line, and God is incarnating his love through a human being. The reality is, for all of us, men and women, God's love and grace and power is most often at work in us and through us. You are an agent of God's love and grace. You are. That's not my opinion. That's a fact. God chooses to work in this world through physical people through men and women, that He has called for His purposes, that He has placed His very spark and image inside of, that for those of us that call on Christ Jesus, He has placed His living Spirit inside of, so that agents of injustice, so that sin prevalent in this world, there are people representing God's will, battling it and bringing it through love and grace. We see Jonathan not just as a cool figure that we can aspire to, although he is, but we see him as we see Scripture as a hand that points us to Christ Jesus. We see Jonathan and we say, How can a person be like that? How can a person be that loving and good? think that, and it points us forward to the ultimate expression of that. One who comes later, who is far greater than Jonathan's love, grace, power, or, or loyalty ever could be in Christ Jesus, who is the one most loyal, who is the one most loving, who is the one who, yes, gives up his very life for God's will to love and work through each of us. I want to read two more stories from Samuel, and then we'll close out. This story playing out, jumping down towards the end. So they come up with this whole plan. There is the story, the lie that Saul calls out, throws a spear. And this is what happens. 1 Samuel 20, verse 34. Jonathan left the table in fierce anger and refused to eat on that second day of the festival, for he was crushed by his father's shameful behavior toward David. Men, I want to speak just for a moment into a Western American ideal of masculinity that is not a biblical view of masculinity. This view that we need to be stoic and strong. Stoicism, strength, strength, quietness deep inside of me i'm just thinking but you don't see me expressing my emotions too much is not biblical it is greek it comes from plato and it comes from aristotle it doesn't come from jesus it doesn't come from scripture because the men that are held up are men like jonathan who feel deeply and passionately he leaves it says he's heartbroken His guts are churning in him. He's weeping openly. He feels deeply for the hurts and injustice of this world. And I think what the world needs most when it comes to men is that men who are open to feel, to feel the pain of others around them and to be open to express their feelings. I grew up in a home I am so grateful for the balanced nature of that home where father's days we would often chop down trees or we would pour cement and we would do construction projects very masculine but I also then learned that at night my father would take a bubble bath and read a book and that I can be both of those things at once I can hold the sword and I can weep over my friend that we are men who weep over our world and have a call inside of us for justice, love, and grace. So then Jonathan and David come up with a second crazy plan. The first one is the whole lie story that doesn't work. The second one is equally weird. It's that, okay, if I find out that my dad's going to kill you, David, what you're going to do, you're going to hide out in this field. There's a big rock. Hide behind that rock. I'm going to come with a servant boy, and I'm going to fire arrows. As the boy goes to pick up the arrows, if I say the arrows are on the left of the rock, then you know you're safe. If I say, no, they're further past the rock, then you know your life is a danger and I want you to leave and you go. One scholar says it had to have been a young boy that he took with him because any adult would be like, what the heck is going on? What's this weird plan? Why are you giving me these code words for picking up arrows? And then the best part is... This is all so that they don't interact with each other. This is all so that David stays safe and has a code and he can slide away, right? But then verse 41, As soon as the boy was gone, David came out from where he had been hiding, near the stone pile. David bowed three times to Jonathan with his face to the ground. This is an act of reverence, appreciation, and love. Both of them were in tears as they embraced each other and said goodbye. What? What? The whole point of the arrows was so David could get away without them interacting. And then David comes out from the rock and they talk to each other. Why the arrows if you're going to talk to each other anyway? Just go out in the field and talk to David. I don't understand it. But I think it's one of those moments of the irrationality of loving embrace. I know you're doing this whole plan for me, Jonathan, to keep me safe so I can run away. But my affection for you moves that same way, and I can't leave without saying goodbye. This is the last time they're ever together relationally. It's it. It's one small moment where they sort of pass by each other again, but this is it. This best friend, never see each other again. Jonathan dies in a tragic war situation, and David comes back. This is it. And they love, and they embrace, and they weep. This has been one of my favorite things as an adult, is being able to have other adult relationships where emotion is present. One of the thoughts about Jesus is Jesus' greatest miracle is not any of the things he performs—water into wine, multiplying—but is the miracle of a man in his thirties having twelve close friends. It's hard as we get older; it shrinks. We're just with our kids or our spouse. We're taking care of the house but that the call in Scripture is to continue to be relational and be open and be vulnerable and to care for one another. We see this most fully. This is our last passage. We'll close out. We see this in the Savior that we worship, in Christ Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11 that Katie read earlier, though he was God, this is Christ Jesus, he did not Think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. We find our greatest example of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a human being is to lay down our lives, privileges, wants, desires, to care for each other in the model that our God did for us. That he came to this earth and gave up his power and privilege. He humbled himself into human flesh. If you have a body, you know how humbling that is. I'm in my 30s, I know how humbling it is. And then he placed himself into the ultimate moment of humility to die on a cross for those whom he loves, you and I. Can we take the example of David and run forward with it? We find our peace, our strength in getting that vertical right. And unlike David, we have the whole story of Jesus. We have the whole story of how good our God is, how loving and gracious He is, and what He has done for us. To live this life as agents of love and to live this life in the fullness of peace, may we align our hearts in a vertical expression of worship. As we close this morning, I want to give you a chance to pray a prayer with me. If you are not a follower of Jesus or not a person of faith, I want to give you a chance just to take one step in that journey. One step of a prayer of openness to receive Christ, to receive God's love through Christ Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, I would give you an opportunity to recommit in this moment, to declare your worship for him and how good he is. If you bow your heads with me. Jesus, we see you. We see the shadows of you in people like Jonathan in the Old Testament. We see you in the worship and the trust of people like David. But we see you in your own incarnation of putting on flesh. And Jesus, may we be like you. May we follow you. May we learn from you and sit at your feet. May we learn, love, a prayer of forgiveness for those who are unjustly taking your life. May we learn from you in a resurrected Jesus who invites the betrayer to breakfast. May we learn from you, Jesus. May we be so full of the truth that we are valued, by the truth that we are loved, and by the truth that we are set free and forgiven by you, Jesus, that we can live with peace in all circumstances. Jesus, you gave your life to me today. I trust in you. I give my life to you that I may know you, be set free by you, and find peace in you all the days of my life. In your name, amen.